There's a prayer where it says, may, may he pour out the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I would tell you that if you were to describe Randall, that I think that for me at least is the thing that really stands out the most of the gift that's on his life. When he opens up the word and begins to speak, there is an even over dinner and conversation we had Three hours went by last night, and it felt like it just went by like that. And um, and uh, and there's just that real gift, that spirit of wisdom and revelation. And and it's it's more than something that you catch here, but it's something that you catch here. You, you're going to get a deposit this morning, an impartation that you'll walk away with understanding. But it's a gift that as you go away, those seeds continue to grow inside of you because there's an impartation of wisdom and revelation imparted. A real father in the kingdom um, pastored a church for 25 years and, and has been itinerant for a long time. I first encountered Randall back in 2001, I believe it was, um, when I was in school of ministry. And um, so without further ado, would you please welcome him as he comes? Thank you. What a glowing introduction. My wife always says, I don't need an introduction, I need a conclusion. And maybe by the time that we're done, you'll know what she means by that. Yeah, it was 20 years ago that I came. Uh, I was in Reading, a little church down there called Bethel. You may have heard of it. And... Um, they asked me if I would come up to Weaverville, and I said, absolutely. And uh, that's when I met Danny. Then I came back when Steve uh, and Wendy, who's coming soon, um, and then with Cameron, and now with Brandon and Amy. So thank you for keeping the light on and not changing the locks on the doors. That means a lot to me. Uh, I... Uh, want to mention, I have only one of my books. I, don't, I mean, I've got more copies, but I only have one that I've written that I brought with me. It's called Brushstrokes of Grace, Grace in a Graceless World, Discovering Grace in a Graceless World. Uh, Bill was so gracious to write the foreword to this a few years ago when we published it. And um, I'd encourage you, if you would, to take a look at that before you leave. Uh, I think they normally sell for, I don't know, 15.95 or something like that, and they're on sale this morning for 25.95. No, I'm just kidding. Now you can have a copy for seven dollars. Do you have one? You do now. There you go. All right. Yeah, Willie is being punished for something. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. To have to drive all the way over here and be my chauffeur. And uh, I ask you if you have not interceded in. Uh, in a profound way you should when I get in the car with him because I've ridden with him before. Yeah. You know, we're living in interesting times, to say the least. That's really an understatement. I sometimes reflect the fact that I have an amazing grasp for the obvious, that uh, it just seems like that most people seem to be obsessing over this present darkness. And I think obsessing over... The darkness is more ungodly than the darkness itself. 
It seems that we are almost drowning in an ocean of information and starving for true wisdom. And so this morning, I want to invite you, if you will, to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll join you there in just a moment. I read about a woman who was diagnosed with an inoperable tumor. She was a believer. And uh, once she received the diagnosis, of course, she was devastated. And uh, the doctor told her, he said, you know, there's really not much point in us doing any exploratory surgery or trying to eradicate it just because of how deeply embedded it is in your body. And so she set herself to prayer and prayed earnestly. And she had a Hezekiah experience. You're familiar with Hezekiah. The Lord spoke to her undeniably and told her that he was going to give her 15 more years. So she called her doctor and told her about what had happened. And he was obviously skeptical being in the medical community, but he consented to do the operation. And so when she goes in for the prep and she's about to go under, she looks at the doctor with a big smile on her face and says, don't worry, this, this, is, going to, this is really going to turn out okay. He was skeptical. He went ahead and did the surgery. A few hours later in recovery, uh, he looks at her and says, you know what? You were right. We were able to get it all. And she said, well, I knew that because God promised to me that I was going to get 15 more years. Kind of raised his eyebrows. She was so elated about this that she went out and got quite a bit of work done. Collagen injections and lipo and lifts and tucks and you mention it, she had it because she was so feel, feeling so good about this new lease on life. Uh, after she recovers from all this uh, surgery, she's at a stoplight one day and a car T-bones her car and she's killed instantly. And when she appears in heaven before the Lord. She said, I thought you promised me 15 more years. He said, I did. But when you had all that work done, he said, I didn't even recognize you anymore. <laughs> now, maybe some of you are wondering how I'm going to segue from that into what I'd like to talk to you about. But it is relevant, as you will see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but unto us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, and I will thwart that. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now scan down, if you will, to verse 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even those things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no humans might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think it goes without saying that we live in a culture that is enamored by the powerful and the beautiful, the articulate, those who seem to be void of any imperfection at all. And what I intend to talk to you about will probably initially sound rather dissonant to your ears and paradoxical to your mind. I want to talk to you about the spirituality of imperfection. The spirituality of imperfection. Now, again, that sounds like somewhat of an oxymoron, you know, kind of like open secret, naturally, act naturally, found missing and deafening silence. Or maybe if I'm going to take a risk, military intelligence. Um, the pairing of those words, again, are rather paradoxical, aren't they? But I think that what Paul does here is he is teaching, as he often does, by making use of paradox because he uses the word wisdom and he pairs it with foolishness or contrasts it with foolishness. He talks about strength and he pairs it with weakness. I wonder sometimes if we've ever considered that the Apostle Paul, in all of his circuitous journey in, in his life, if he was ever conscious that the letters that he wrote, you know, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament, that the letters that he wrote would actually be preserved and find their way into the greater volume of Scripture. I don't think that he was aware of that. As he's writing letters to Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and, you know, the church at Philippi, uh, and he writes to this young man that he's mentoring, Timothy, I don't think he knew as he is pitting these letters that they would be preserved and become a part of what we look to for reference. Pretty amazing to me. Any more than I think that the psalmist David uh, was aware that in his journaling, because that's what I see the psalms as being. He's not responsible for all of them. Moses and Hezekiah and other authors are responsible for the compilation of the psalms, which is probably the most read of all biblical literature. Uh, I, as these men are journaling, I don't think that they know. They're just, you know, trying to find meaning. They're groping for understanding and insight and wisdom. Yet it was preserved, and here we are thousands of years later, gaining insight through their insights. Pretty amazing, isn't it? But in order for us to understand the fuller context and the contemporary nature of what Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, if you're not familiar with these two letters that he wrote to the Corinthian church, the classic charismatic first century church, as far as I'm concerned, uh, he is writing to an audience that is very much like the audiences that I speak to today. Audiences that have been conditioned uh, to pay attention primarily to those things that are pleasant to the eye, and those things that ring true to the ear. And so when he begins to introduce what appears to be total paradox to them, it is almost faith-shattering. 
because they were in love with wisdom. If you know anything about the Greek culture, they, if you know anything about the sculptures of that time, you know they were in love with beauty, weren't they? They didn't really see any connection, as I'm going to attempt to do. They didn't really see any connection between there being true spirituality found in imperfection. Now, uh, maybe I should remind you, as I have on previous visits, when I feel that people are not getting the point, I tend to go longer. So lean in and respond as best as you can. I, I, I don't want to overstate this, but it, it really is counterintuitive what Paul is suggesting that there is really strength found in weakness and wisdom even in what seems to be foolish. Are we tracking? You see, to me, Paul was the most mentally and physically resilient man in all of history, especially in the first century. Yet he acknowledged that there were times that he was drained of all of his resolve. It's really encouraging to me. You know, I, I so appreciate that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is filled with dysfunction. The Bible is one of the most, it's, it's, it's a really messy book. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? And you might want to challenge me later, but you've come too late to do so. But you would be hard-pressed to find a perfect family in all of Scripture. So again, this man, though he was very much aware of his own weaknesses, it was he realized that it was in those times that he was able to tap into the inexhaustible energy of God. He will go on later, and I'll probably read this passage of Scripture, and say, if you want to boast anything, if you want to know what I boast about, I boast... In my weakness. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, you, you've had the opportunity of, of hearing some very capable communicators. How often do you hear them boasting? They may reference it. But how many of you hear them boasting about their weaknesses? You know, unless I miss my guess, you rarely ever experience that. Vulnerability is not something you usually hear from people that are in my position. Because we fear, we fear appearing weak. And the conundrum of that is not understanding that in being able to divulge that, there is where we find what real strength looks like. You know, I labored under this misconception for many years, I'm not going to be too vulnerable, but vulnerable enough. I labored under this misconception for many years that I was saved by grace, but it really had more to do with my efforts after coming to that realization. And I was constantly trying to get my act together until one day it dawned on me that if I ever really got my act together, it still would be nothing but an act. Am I relating to anybody? And I, be, 
You know, I found myself obsessed over the way I appeared to people. And didn't realize that what was happening as a result was I was becoming what I was beholding. Now, we all know this to be true, that we become what we behold. You know, Paul makes that clear. He says, we are all changed as we behold him as in a mirror. But I, myself, found myself almost unconsciously being obsessed with what other people saw in me. You see, the... the, The person that judges you the most is not the person that is your spouse or your family members or your peers, but the person who judges you the most and the worst is the one you saw in the mirror this morning. You see, after 41 years of doing this, I've discovered that most people don't give up on God. They give up on themselves. And they need somebody to tell them, as simple as this is, to me it's simply profound, that you don't have a right to have an opinion about yourself. By the time that you go to sleep this evening, you will have had between 50 and 60,000 thoughts. And according to the science of neuroplasticity, this, is, this has to do with the whole idea of self-narrative. And I'm writing a book about that now, the stories we tell ourselves. And... Uh, So by the time you go to sleep tonight, you will have had that many thoughts go through your mind. Now, that might seem absurd to you, but now I'm making you aware of it because you seldom think about the way you think or think about the way you think. And you often think other people think the way you think, and really that's just the way that you think. And you haven't really learned how to observe your own thoughts, thinking that you are your thoughts. Most of us... (coughs) We okay so far? Uh, you see, I, I'll, I'll make this statement without fear of contradiction. You, you're not who you think you are. You're not who other people think you are, but you think you are. <laughs> and so in the field of narrative psychology and this whole thing of neuroplasticity, uh, what they suggest, which I think is, is totally true, is that 80% of the thoughts that you will have today will be negative in nature, and only 20% of them will be positive. The 80% have a Velcro effect. They attach themselves to you. The 20% have a Teflon effect. They just slide right off of you. Now, I don't want to depress you further, but tomorrow you will process again the 80% of negative thoughts that you had today. Ever heard of an earworm? Do you know what an earworm is? I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, the contemporary way of describing how that when you get a song in your head and you can't get it out, it's on a continual loop. And so I believe, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm doing therapy on you here, <clears throat> but I believe that what Paul is addressing here, again, is very paradoxical. It's counterintuitive. Intuitive to them when he begins to talk about in a culture that is obsessed with power and perfection, wisdom and beauty, and he begins to talk about real wisdom is an understanding that it is found almost in foolishness. Because it's an interesting word that he uses here, 
when he talks about foolishness or a fool. It's the Greek word moros, from which we derive the word moron. And the word that he uses here for weak is invalid. You see, the reason why this is so, you know, startling to them, as it is even to us, is because the culture that he is addressing, again, was obsessed and enamored with those things that they perceived uh, to be something that we should all be in pursuit of. You know, this is... uh, This kind of spirit is, and I'm really reluctant to use that kind of terminology, but it's really true. This kind of spirit is almost airborne these days. Because, uh, especially in in the broader church culture, we too are susceptible to being impressed by things that we shouldn't be impressed by. With personalities, powerful personalities that are always exuding Bravado. Seems the ones that are the loudest and the most audacious are the ones that garner our attention. I'm, I'm choosing my words very, very selective here, selectively here, because I understand that we're living in very polarizing times, very divisive times. And it's like. You know, there is this constant diatribe that we are subjected to. And uh, I don't think we we realize that uh, men would rather go to war than to lose an argument. And, you know, we'll even misuse passages of Scripture. We will distort, misuse and abuse even the teachings of the Apostle Paul who said that we should speak the truth in love. Well, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm doing it in love. (laughs) But I'm speaking the truth. You see, the real issue here has to do with the spirit of it. It has to do with the motive of it. This is not a listening culture at all. This is a culture that is characterized by trampling over other people with their opinions. And uh, if you acquiesce to that, then you are perceived as being weak. But Jesus made it clear when he's standing before power. Remember, as he has been arraigned by Caiaphas and Annas and he's brought before Pilate. For sentencing, and he's standing there, and he looks at him, and he says, Don't you understand that I hold your life in my hand? And he uttered not a word. That looks like weakness, doesn't it? That that looks like foolishness. I mean, when you think of the cross itself, that's why he references the cross, and he compares the cross to wisdom. What? What? You do understand that, you know, we are far more familiar with the, with the crucifixion of Jesus than we are with the other crucifixions that were uh, being committed even prior to his birth. I mean, uh, if you know anything about church history, and I won't assume 
anything about that, that just prior to, to Jesus' arrival, that there were over 30,000 people in, in Israel that had been crucified because they were in resistance to the Roman government. Much of what we call Christianity today mirrors some of this kind of thinking, especially conservative Christianity. Because the whole idea behind crucifixion, if it was anybody that was a dissident, anybody that was a resistor, and, and as a matter of fact, that's why Jesus coming with another gospel was, was so profoundly important for us to understand because the gospel that was being preached, which, by the way, do you know the word gospel is not a word that was coined in, this, in the community of faith? It was not a spiritual word initially. The word gospel was associated with propaganda. The word gospel was already in play before Jesus was ever born. And the, did you realize that? So when Jesus comes along, he's preaching a gospel that is absolutely diametrically opposed to the gospel that was already in play. And the gospel that was already in play is that Caesar was immaculately conceived on the coinage. There was his image stating that Caesar is Lord. And the spreading of their gospel or their propaganda was to conquer, colonize, and subjugate people in order to bring their brand of peace. And along comes Jesus preaching a total paradox to that. Are you still with me or did I lose you on that? He comes along and as does the Apostle Paul take up that same theme and he says the real gospel, the real kingdom has to do with peace and reconciliation. The real gospel has to do with turning the other cheek. That's the real gospel. So that doesn't go down very well, especially here in the West in the 21st century. Because, again, we are so enamored by the power brokers. Because they're the ones that are really strong. I mean, why is it that you... I'm going to, I'm going to digress here a little bit. Why is it that you think... That our, our culture, that, that we stream to the box office to watch the movies and, and they, you know, they make billions, not millions, billions to watch the superheroes. You know, I, I recognize, I'm looking across my audience and I recognize that if I mention this name that many of you probably won't even recognize this name. Uh, but, uh, you know, I came up in the era when we were just totally uh, uh, impressed by an action figure, you know, a superhero by the name of Chuck Norris. Maybe you've, you know, read some of the quips about Chuck Norris, you know. I mean, this guy was, <laughs> I mean, when he was born, he drove his mother home from the hospital. <laughs> he was once bitten by a rattlesnake. And after seven agonizing days, the rattlesnake died. 
He's larger than live people. He's never had a heart attack because his heart was afraid of attacking him. I could go on and on. I mean, it wouldn't be any help. It wouldn't be helpful though. So coming back to the key words here that he uses in contrast to wisdom and strength and power, and I want to make this as practical as I possibly can. He puts in play this word moros, foolish, moron. And when I first discovered that that was the inference of what he was saying, it was a huge relief to me. It really was. Because I knew what it was like to go through protracted seasons where I obsess over my own sense of inadequacy. It's a huge statement. I mean, this is not false humility. This is not false humility on the part on the part of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he will even say in Philippians, have you ever read his resume? It's pretty impressive in Philippians. I mean, he essentially had no rivals. The man's genius was unparalleled. But he began to put things into perspective and he realized that God is really attracted. It's irresistible. There's one thing that God cannot resist. Or can I put it this way, even sound blasphemous, that God has a weakness and that weakness is yours. Cannot resist it. I mean, if you have really read the Gospels in a contemplative way, then you understand that he is always gravitating toward those who have been marginalized and dehumanized. There's, there's where he's going. That's where God is always going. Because he cannot resist it. And the same is true now. I mean, I love the story of Samson in the Old Testament. And, you know, he is somewhat of a Chuck Norris figure, right? This indomitable personality, Samson. Have you ever noticed, though, that his epitaph is rather interesting? After he's been stripped of all that, and the Philistines have discovered the source of his strength, and they've blinded him, they gouged his eyes out, his head is shorn, and he has to have a child to lead him to the pillars of the Philistine pagan temple. And he reaches once more. Here, here you have, again, this uh, contradiction in terms. He puts his arms around the pillars of the Philistine temple and summons strength that he was unaware was there. And when it begins to implode on them, his epitaph is that he killed more in his death than he did in all of his life. You know, I, I hope that doesn't have a morbid tone to it. But see, we're not here to learn how to survive. We're here to learn how to surrender. Darwin's theory was the survival of the fittest. Jesus' truth, his theory, was the survival of the unfittest. 
He said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. Can you imagine how that hit the ears of his disciples? If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, you'll find it. What? You see, everything in the kingdom of God has always been in direct contradiction to our core values. The way you live is by dying. The way you add is by subtracting. The way you multiply is by dividing. The way up is down. Just a few months ago, I, was, I found myself an invalid. Not physically, but I felt helpless. And uh, I, I had no answers, and I was in desperate need of answers. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, I, I might as well have been physically paralyzed, emotionally paralyzed, and without answers. And, uh, I, you know, I had was reminded of, of how that most of my life that it seemed that whenever I got resolved, or answers to a lot of my troubling questions that God would change the questions. See, I'm, I'm convinced that most people never learn anything because they understand everything far too soon. You know, we have, we have actually worshipped at the idol of certainty and not understood that the patriarchs, the matriarchs of Scripture, that they lived in what is referred to as the cloud of unknowing. Their lives were constantly characterized by mystery. They were perceived as being powerless by the powerful. I, I, I promise you, I've been saying this for years, and I won't back down on it. That clarity is overrated and intrigue is underestimated. If you're confused right now, if you're in a cloud or in a fog, congratulations. Because as, as Philip Yancey said, he said, I have come to believe that faith is trusting that what does not make sense now will in reverse. So what are we here for? And I don't mean for this, you know, to sound like that, uh, that I'm endorsing that we ought to pursue suffering. You don't have to pursue it. You don't have to pray for it. It will find you. But Jesus is saying that the human experience is about losing your life or what you perceive yourself to be so that you might discover life in him. So here's here's the thing that I've been living by for quite a long time now is that wisdom is learning not to constantly ask, why is this happening to me? But what is it saying? to me what is it saying to me
come to a close with this. How many of you have ever heard of the ancient artwork called Kintsugi? You ever heard of Kintsugi? Kintsugi, as I understand it, originated in the 17th century. And in the 17th century, uh, there was this craft that was developed as a result of heirlooms that had been passed through generations that had inadvertently by accident had been broken. And these heirlooms, the value of them was not just uh, in what the, pr the price that was paid for them, but because they had survived generations. Often they would be broken accidentally. And so this particular work of art was taking that which, is, that which had been broken and welding them together in the fractures, sometimes with silver and with gold. Now, the interesting thing about it was, if you've ever seen this, you can Google it later and look at it. It's stunning. The interesting thing about it is, is this particular art form does not seek to hide where the brokenness is, but it actually accentuates where it was. See, this is, this is really what Paul is doing in all of his vulnerability. You know, uh, that, that's why he would say that I boast. What? I boast in my weakness. Right? I wanted, I wanted to read that. Uh, yeah, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.30, he said, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own self, I will not boast except in my weakness. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be willing to in, in speaking the truth. Hmm. Remember, he says there in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I, I appeal to the Lord three times to be delivered from this thorn in the flesh. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some, you probably heard this address before, there, there's, there's some debate about what he was referring to when he talked about the thorn in the flesh. You know, if, if, if I use basic hermeneutics or principles of interpretation, I go back into the Old Testament and I see that this metaphor that he is using for thorns was not necessarily suggesting that he had a physical malady, that he would, that was a disease or a sickness that, that he had not been healed from. But if I go back into the Old Testament and this whole, in fact, you use it in, in the contemporary sense, that person is a thorn in my side, right? So what he's talking about, as far as I'm concerned, is the constant chastisement that he has experienced as, as he is trying to preach the truth, as he is trying to share the gospel of the kingdom. This is the Judaizers. It's people that had already determined that he was a heretic, People that had already determined that they were not in agreement with his theology. And he prayed three times that he might be, deli be delivered from that. And each time the Lord told him, he said, my grace is sufficient. You see, now, the reason why that has particular relevance for me is because I've, under I've come to understand that 
my best teachers in life are usually the ones that irritate me the most. We don't usually see it that way, do we? But everything and everyone that comes into your life, whether it's briefly or for an extended period of time, they've been sent there to be your teacher. And the reason why many of us are chafing against it is because we see it as an irritation. We don't, we don't understand that this is God coming to us disguised as our own life. And so we, we don't realize, you know, and we try, we, we do our best to distract ourselves from those things or to avoid those situations. You know, avoidance behavior is, all, is something that all of us are, are very adept at, avoidance behavior. And, and see, here's the problem with that, is that every problem you will ever have, you've always been present. Right? Is that true? Who is it in your life right now that you are, you're, you're even praying sincerely, Lord, would you please change them? Would you please change them? And really, the change that you are desperate to see take place in other people reflects the change that needs to take place in you. Because you don't see people as they are, you see them as you are. Are you kidding me? Yeah, these are people that are a real gift to you. You said a moment ago as you introduced me that I was a gift. I mean, think about the person right now. Don't think too long. Don't obsess over it. But think about the person right now that is the most irritating and grates on you. The person with these ridiculous political views. Have I got your attention yet? <laughs> Maybe the reason why that's just an irritation, you know, and, and you're thinking, you know, there's very, very little intelligent humility that exists these days, you know. You, you, you think that you've been put in their life to convince them how wrong they are. I promise you, a man who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Listening, listening is the most generous. Listen, this may seem very, very simple, but I mean it as much as anything I've said so far. Listening is the most generous thing that you can do for another human being. And we don't realize how that we unconsciously engage in these relational dynamics and we engage with a... Because there is no such thing as unbiased thought. So we engage with the intention of changing them. Even converting them. Which Jesus really never came to make converts. What? 
No, he really didn't. Jesus didn't come to introduce a new religion, a new list. There's no religion that leads to God. Jesus came to demonstrate what it looks like to be fully human. One of the reasons why that, you know, we, we miss the full import of the life and ministry of Jesus is that we focused entirely on the reason for the incarnation was the atonement. But the full reason for the incarnation is for God to become fully who we are with all of its limitations so that he could experience empathy. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmity. So I'm going to go so far to tell you, if Jesus is what a true human looks like, right? He's what a true human looks like. Understanding that most people live all their lives as if it's a sentence, and that life is almost like a sexually transmitted disease. That's what causes them to be in constant pursuit of spiritual experiences without understanding, as Meister Eckhart, this brilliant Catholic theologian, that says that we are not human beings in pursuit of spiritual experience. We are spirits that are in pursuit of human experiences. That's what the incarnation is all about. Are you still with me so far? Is this okay? It's almost over. I told you. I promised you I'd close, didn't I? So what I take away from that, you, you may tell you, and this is going to sound bold, I know the will of God for everybody in this room. Because see, you know, you've reduced it to where you live, what you do for a living, who you marry, and you miss the point. The will of God for every human being in this room is to understand that the human one, the incarnate God in the flesh, went about demonstrating empathy. It was fully entering into other people's experience. I'm not talking about codependency, but I'm talking about true empathic experiences where they entered fully into those experiences. That's why you still have a pulse. Otherwise, I become self-absorbed and I forget that Jesus says that if I seek to save my life, because that's what the ego is always doing, and we all have one, like the acronym that has given us the word ego, edging God out. It's coming to the realization that none of us are separate from one another. All of us are connected. Paul would make this abundantly clear on Mars Hill when he says that we are of all one blood. So what does that have to do with what we started out talking about, the spirituality of imperfection? It is beginning to fully embrace that and know that how clever it is for God to hide holiness in imperfection. <laughs> That's pretty clever as far as I'm concerned. 
I wonder sometimes if we need to adjust our, our, our language, our, our Christianese, when we're addressing God in all of His greatness. And, and I'm not minimizing that. We're addressing God in all of His greatness, in all of His grandeur. Where's the prayer that says, Oh, vulnerable God. <laughs> because when He reveals Himself... In Bethlehem, it doesn't get any more vulnerable than that because he's a child at risk. <laughs> Not from the way we see it, but he, when, when he comes into the human experience, he's an at-risk child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what is it right now in your, in your life where you in, feel incredibly vulnerable, uh, void of strength, lacking absolute stamina. I mean, several years ago, I was going through a, a very long season where the demands were just crushing in nature. And I'll never forget, I heard the Lord say to me, He said, why do you keep resisting weakness? Because the more you resist weakness, the weaker you become. If you will learn to embrace weakness, this is what in itself will be the catalyst to release strength that is beyond anything that you ever imagined. And, you know, you're, you're trying somehow to summon more faith. I just had more faith. That's why I believe that, that, that Jesus, you know, in, in, uh, in his resurrection, he says, make sure you tell Peter that I'll meet him in Galilee. And he doesn't remind him of his lack of faith or his denial. Because it was not about Peter's lack of faith, but it was about the faith that Jesus had in him. Come on now. You see, what you believe about God is not as important as what He believes about you. And when you start believing what He believes about you, come on. Beauty is not in the eye of the receiver, it's in the eye of the beholder. Amen. Well, stand up and let me pray for your healing. <laughs> this made any sense to you at all? <clears throat> Lord, we, we live in such a disposable-minded culture. When something is broken, when something is bruised, when something is fractured, uh, it's so easy because there's either someone else or something else that will replace what is of no longer any use. I'm so thankful that you said that the bruised reed you will not break and the smoldering flax you will not quench. And somehow we ask that we would begin as the Apostle Paul to be able to begin to boast in our weaknesses <laughs> and to know how attracted you are to that.
I thank you for people here this morning that uh, who have already determined that they're such damaged goods until there's nothing of any value that could ever result from them the rest of their lives because they're, they, they have a broken marriage, a broken family, they have broken dreams. Some of them, Lord, have experienced unimaginable loss. And I ask, Lord, that somehow that you would grace them with the ability now to rejoice in that. To rejoice in that. You didn't, you didn't say for it, but you said in everything that give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So help us, Lord, to find true spirituality that may be hidden in our imperfection. <laughs> it's hidden there. For out of it, Lord, there is a glory that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. So I thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, for your sons and daughters. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Well, there's so many nuggets in there. I think everyone in here has something that they're going to take home today. And um, I want to read something to you real quick. This is just something that um, it's actually in a book by Jay Vallotton that, um, that he quotes Henry David Thoreau. And I just I want you all to like grab on something that that really impacted you today. Just to, like hold it really close to you right now. And I'm going to read this to you. It says, as a single footstep will not make a path on the earth. So with a single thought will not make a pathway in the mind. To make a deep physical path, we will walk again and again. To make a deep mental path, we must think over and over the kind of thoughts we wish to dominate our lives. So I want you to take those things, what he's depositing you today, and over the course of this next week, I want you to like, like um, be intentional and hold that close and think again, yes, God, that's what you say. And... Uh, whether it's about my imperfection and boasting in that, whether it's, God, thank you for that person you put in my life. That is such a challenge. I and mean, thank you what you're doing in me through it. Whatever that may be that, you're holding, that you just pulled out of there today, that would, like, that's for me. I want you to spend this week going back to God with that. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you that I am who you say I am. Yes, God.